The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we have a few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture says if we confess our sins, that means simply to admit or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so confession simply restores fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can resume our Christian life and so that we can learn doctrine, so we need to uh, make sure we're in fellowship when we sit under the teaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we have this privilege and opportunity to study Your Word this morning, that that your word is your word. It is not the word of man. It is not the opinion of man. It is not simply the reflection of people's experiences with you, but it is the absolute, infallible, inerrant revelation of yourself to us. Father, we pray that as we study your word, that we would be submissive to its instruction and that you would make these things clear to us. Father, now we pray that we would be challenged as we study these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning into the next section of the second chapter of John, continuing one of the greatest epistles in the New Testament, teaching us about fellowship with Christ, what those dynamics are, and what's involved in fellowship. So, we begin at verse 12 of 1 John chapter 2. Fellowship is the key to understanding 1 John. It is not about salvation. It's about the believer maintaining fellowship and maintaining his Christian walk. Usually this comes under the term abide, as Jesus used it in John 15 in the upper room uh, discourse, as well as here in 1 John. So we read in 1 John 2, 12-14, our next paragraph, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. 
I write to you little children because you have known the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. One of the most important things that you should do in Bible study is to look at context. So often we take time, as we will this morning, to focus in on one or two words and we get the microscope out as it were and we examine a particular doctrine. Sometimes you lose in that process the overall orientation. It's like taking a large map, let's say the state of Connecticut, and and you just zero in on a little area between uh, the intersection of Route 164 and 165 and, and, and Route 2, and you just focus on that, and that's all you know. And you lose perspective of how that relates to other towns and other areas. I know every now and then I get on the Internet, and you'll click on something, and you're looking for a store or something, you click on it, and it gives you this, this microscopic look at the map, and you don't know where you are in relation to anything else. And you have to enlarge it and, and enlarge the perspective three or four times. All, all of a sudden, you see three or four larger towns, and, and the highway numbers appear on the map, and you begin to be able to orient yourself to what it is that you're looking for. Same thing's through in Scripture. So we have to take time to look at the overall structure of First John and where John is going. Now, we have seen that in the first 11 verses of this chapter, on, back into chapter 1, from 1 John 1, 1 to 1 John 2, 11, is the opening introduction, which can be divided into the prologue in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and then the introduction from 1 John 1, 5 down through 1 John 2, 11. In this section, especially in the introduction section from 1.5 to 2.11, John focuses on the words, the key themes that he's going to develop in this epistle. It's just repetition. He just keeps coming back to the same thing, using the same words over and over again. He's going to talk about love for God, what's involved in love, expanding the whole concept of love, abiding in Christ, fellowship. Again and again, he's going to expand on these concepts so they're introduced to us uh, in, in a, almost a cursory way from 1 John 5 to 1 John, 1 John 1 5 to 1 John 2 11. And then we come to this, this third section where he explains the purpose of the epistle from 2 12 to 2 27. So, unlike many of the epistles in the New Testament, there's not just a uh, five or six or even a ten-verse introduction. We have a sort of a three-stage introduction with a prologue introduction and now a statement of the purpose of the epistle. And the purpose of this epistle from 2.12 to 2.27 is really found down at the end of the section in verse 27b where you have the command, you will abide in Him. That is the theme. Abide is mentioned seven times times in this section from 2.12 to 2.27 and that relates to a basic law of Bible study called proportion that whenever the Holy Spirit seems to say something repeatedly or seems to give a tremendous amount of attention to one particular word or concept then you ought to pay attention to it so abide is used seven times in 2.14, 2.17, 2.19 2.24 and 2.27 so that tells us that The main concept here is abiding, which is tantamount to fellowship. It's a synonym for fellowship. We can divide this section 
into three parts. In 2.12 to 14, John tells us that abiding is based on mastering spiritual assets in each stage of spiritual development. That there are different assets we put in place and that we master as we grow from spiritual infancy, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence to spiritual adulthood. These come under the terminology of fathers, young men, and children in this section. And then in 2.15 through 17, he shifts and he emphasizes that we abide by eliminating cosmic thinking. Cosmos is the Greek word for worldly. I like using cosmic instead of worldly because too many people have funny ideas about worldliness. Worldliness has to do with thinking, cosmic thinking. It is not biblical thinking. It's human viewpoint thinking and it is tantamount to the kind of thinking of the demons. It's related to that in James 3:13 through 15 that the thinking of the world is earthly, natural, and demonic. So we abide by eliminating cosmic thinking from our soul. That means that we have to replace it with Bible doctrine. That's why the Christian life begins with learning the Word of God, saturating our soul with what the Word of God says. And incidentally, that can't happen simply on in 30 minutes or an hour on Sunday. It's got to be a daily procedure where we saturate our thoughts with God's thoughts. And then the third division of this section, uh, we abide by avoiding the false doctrine of the Antichrist. So that means we have to understand, at least to some level, what the false teaching is that goes around in any particular generation, any particular culture, any particular decade. We have to be able to identify the false concepts because Satan is extremely subtle and he often teaches uh, error through things that sound very good, that appeal to our common sense, as it were, things that we almost grow up learning, uh, just from we just pick up from our parents, from peers, from teachers at school, from movies, from television shows, and so it sounds good to us. So we have to learn to identify the vocabulary, the false teaching, the verbiage that often is freighted with human viewpoint thought and that we pick up in our soul. So if we're going to have fellowship, we have to first of all do the positive thing, which is to master spiritual assets. We have to identify them and master them. They are skills. Skills are developed through practice over and over and over again. It's like military training. You just do it to the point of boredom, and that's when your training begins. Those of you who were in the military know that when you had to go through certain drills, you went through them to the point of tediousness. And that was just the beginning. And then you did it again and again and again until you could do it in your sleep. You could do it blindfolded. And that, therefore, when the pressure came, you didn't have to worry about thinking too much. You just automatically went into action and did what you were supposed to do. That's why these spiritual skills must be practiced day in and day out, claiming promises, confessing sin, um, orienting our thinking to doctrine, thinking in terms of what the Bible says. So we'll start off with mastering spiritual assets in these first verses this morning. Now we come to 1 John 2.12, and here we're introduced to the first and primary asset of the spiritual life in verse 12. John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you, for His name's sake. Now, there's a tremendous amount in this verse, and we probably won't even get there 
to finish it for at least two more weeks. So we're going to take some time to explore some of our basic assets. I am writing you is the Greek word grapho. It's a present active indicative first person singular. Emphasizes the present act of John's writing. He's not currently writing. He wrote at one particular time. Even when the readers of this epistle received this epistle, John had already written past tense. So this is what is called an aristic present, like an aorist tense, except it's not past. It just refers to a particular point in time, we might say, an aristic present used by, the, used by any writer to indicate his present activity of inscribing the epistle. Now, John is an apostle. There were only, I believe, twelve apostles, the eleven who were with Jesus. One disappeared because he was an unbeliever and committed suicide. That was Judas Iscariot. And then he was replaced eventually by Paul. I don't think Barnabas was was an apostle because apostle is a spiritual gift. Uh, An apostle is, the spiritual gift is bestowed at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. It is not bestowed by a group of guys holding a straw vote to determine who they're going to make an apostle, which is what happened in Acts 1 uh, with Matthias. And we never hear of Matthias again. So he was re- Judas was replaced by an apostle who was born out of time, as it were, the apostle Paul. Now, this tells us when J- John says, I am writing to you, this refers to our first and most significant spiritual asset, and that is the Word of God. We have in our possession the very Word of God. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 2.15 this morning, we have the thinking of Christ, the mind of Christ. You want to know what God thinks about a particular subject? You go to the Word of God. It addresses everything we need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. So we have the Word of God. Now, We have to be careful how we use that terminology. We have the Word of God. Because there are people of different theological persuasions who have perverted the use of that. For example, in the early part of the 20th century, you had the development of a new theological framework called Neo-Orthodoxy. Neo-Orthodoxy was a reaction in Europe to liberalism. Liberalism just said that the Bible isn't the Word of God at all, it's just the Word of man. But that didn't hold up, so a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth came along and said, well, the Bible, we can't say the Bible's not the Word of God because there are special things there, so the Bible contains the Word of God. And, and that was the core of neo-Orthodoxy. And they use, neo-Orthodoxy used traditionally Orthodox words and phrases, but they didn't mean the same thing. So you talk to somebody who's neo-Orthodox, and you say, uh, and they'll say, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. You better ask, well, just what do you mean by that, that you believe the Bible's the Word of God? Uh, when I was in, in Houston about 15, 16 years ago, for a while, short while, I attended a Presbyterian church that some friends of mine were going to and said it was pretty good. And, and uh, I, I was in between ministries and I thought, well, I'll check this out. And I heard the pastor teach several times, and it didn't sound bad. It sounded good. You listened to the guy. You would think you were hearing the gospel, and you would think that the guy was pretty conservative. But I spent some time talking with him in his study and asking the perceptive questions. 
And he did, when he said Jesus Christ died for your sins, he didn't mean Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for a sin penalty of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire and that he bore our penalty completely and wholly on his body on the cross. He didn't believe that. He believed in what's called a moral view of the atonement and that is the, or an example, example view of the atonement that Jesus died as an example of how we should devote ourselves to what we believe in. But see, he's using orthodox vocabulary, but he's giving it new meaning. That's why it's called neo-orthodoxy and why it's extremely deceptive. And the neo-orthodox will say they believe the Word of God, but what they mean is it contains the Word of God. They'll also say things like, we believe the Bible is the Word of God and is infallible in all matters of faith and practice. Well, what about all the other things the Bible talks about? Like when it refers to geography or refers to history or refers to certain ancient peoples that we have no record of from archaeology that's still infallible there? Oh, no, 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 no. Just, just in matters of faith and practice. So they want to divide the Bible into those passages that address perhaps creation, history, uh, civiliz- various ancient civilizations. Uh, that's not infallible. They're only faith and practice. Well, all the faith and practice in this Bible is rooted in historical events. So if you take away the one, that is the historical events, you have to take away the doctrine. Just think, if Jesus didn't actually, truly, really rise bodily from the grave, there is no victory over death. He wasn't the God-man. That's grounded. That is a faith and practice principle that is grounded in a historical act. You can't bifurcate the Scriptures that way. And yet, you have to be able to listen, not just to what they say, but what they don't say. So they'll say the Bible contains the Word of God, and by that they mean that when you read some passage of Scripture and it seems to hit you right between the eyes and have some tremendous significance or meaning for your life at that time, that at that instant it becomes the Word of God to you. And see, the guy next to you in the pew may read that passage and it doesn't have any impact on them, so it's not the Word of God to them. So it's pure subjectivity. And that dominates many, many of the more moderate uh, seminaries in fact, that, that is one of the things that produced the great battles over inerrancy and infallibility in the Southern Baptist Convention back in the uh, late 70s, and we're still seeing residual effects from that among Southern Baptists. Also, the uh, 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 Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church, which is more conservative, had some major battles over that. Fuller Seminary bailed out on inerrancy and infallibility back in the late 60s, and that's their doctrinal statement is that we believe... The Bible is the infallible Word of God in all matters of faith and practice, period. So, you have to be very careful. Now, the older liberalism that that was a a reaction to just thought that the Word of God means it's a word about God. It's a word about God. It's the record of different people's experiences with the spiritual. We have to say that. I don't know if I can even say it in the right pious tone but it is a record of the experiences of the spiritual people over the years. So it's, again, nothing more than subjective insights from people like Abraham and Moses and David and and some man from uh, Palestine, they would say, named Jesus. But it doesn't have anything to do with the objective revelation and disclosure of an almighty God to his creatures. So John is not saying that. John is writing 
under the inspiration ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So what he is writing is not his opinion. It's not his view. It's not the accumulation of his great knowledge after a lifetime of almost 90 years in the flesh. He is writing under the inspiration ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that what he is writing is guaranteed to be free from error. It is a writing that is designed to teach us exactly what we need to know for salvation, for the spiritual life, to teach us the principles for thinking in every other area of life. See, the Word of God provides a framework of thought for every area of life. The sad thing that, that's going on today, I got in a conversation yesterday with Charlie Clough, and you all know Charlie. Turns out Charlie's just going to, by chance, as we Calvinists say, I want somebody to chuckle on that, just by chance going to be in our neck of the woods on October I think it's October the 7th, and that's when I may be going to, I will be going to California. So that worked out very handily that Charlie's going to come over and spend a couple hours on Sunday morning teaching. I know everybody will enjoy that, but we were talking yesterday about all of the turmoil that goes on in seminaries and among academicians about, arguing about, and now they're arguing about things like the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God, and they're arguing about basic stuff that was resolved years and centuries ago. Why don't they just accept the realities of Scriptures and these guys start pursuing application of doctrine in every realm of life? You see, the Word of God as a framework is designed to be a basis for developing a biblical, divine viewpoint uh, basis for art, for literature, for law, for uh, every realm of human endeavor. And yet, these theologians, men who allegedly know the Bible so well, just spend their time rehashing and rehashing and rehashing what they learned in seminary to find out if it was true or not, rather than taking the truth and pushing it out there into every area of life and really doing fulfilling the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1, and that is to take every realm of thought under captivity for Christ. But they just reinvent everything. You know, that's one of the things I appreciated so much about Pastor Theme and his ministry was that he took what he was taught from Lewis Berry Chafer and from the faculty of Dallas Seminary back in the 40s and took that as absolute truth and said, okay, if this is true, let's build on it. And he built a fantastic theological system based on that foundation. Most guys, 99.9% of the men who come out of seminary, spend the next 50 years of their ministry trying to figure out if they understood and believed what they were taught in seminary. They don't go anywhere with it. And it's just absurd. And so now we're in this regression among scholars, and I think we're on the verge of another tremendous division of liberalism versus conservatism in our churches today. And the problem is that most people in the pew don't know it, and most people in the seminary have fraudulently foisted on everybody the idea that they're still teaching the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And they're already into liberalism and liberal methodologies in most of the conservative seminaries from Dallas to Trinity in Chicago to um, Talbot out in California. And yet the people who are supporting those seminaries are still being told that nothing's changed. We're still teaching the same thing that was taught back in the 1940s and 50s. And it's just a fraud. So... We have to be warned about these things and we have to look at the Scriptures and realize that the Scriptures are designed to teach us about every single area of life. So we need to review and expand on our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. 
the doctrine of inspiration. Point number one. Let's get a definition. We'll break it down, look at the parts, but let's get an overall definition of the word inspiration. It's based on the it's a translation in First Timothy or Second Timothy three sixteen. The Greek word theonoustos. Theonoustos is a compound word thea from theos God and noustos from pneuma meaning wind or breath, and it refers to God breathing, the breath of God, God breathing out Scripture which is inspiration. So the definition is that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, God's complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, that sounds like a mouthful, so we need to break it down. Key verses are John 10.35, Matthew 5.18, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, and 1 Corinthians 2.14-16. Now, the key verse is 2 Timothy 3.15-17, where we read, Paul writing to Timothy, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. That refers to the Old Testament because that's all Timothy had when he was young. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture. Now that would move beyond simply the sacred writings of the Old Testament to include what was then in process and that was the New Testament uh, canon of Scripture. At the point that Paul wrote this, the end of his life, his epistles had all been written, and so you had that part of the canon. Acts was finished, so you had that part of the canon. You probably had uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and that had that part of the canon. You didn't have John or the epistles of John yet, or Revelation, maybe uh, a couple of others. But, but for the most part, you had about 80%, 90% of the New Testament completed. All Scripture is inspired by God, Theotnustos, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, that is doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's the key verse. We'll have to break it down in detail when we get to it. Let's look at the definition. First of all, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. What does that mean? First of all, there are two authors of every passage of the Bible. Two authors of every passage of the Bible, the divine author and the human author. And we must understand the, the, the distinction between the two. The divine author is not omniscient. The hum, I mean, the human author is not omniscient. The divine author is. So even though the human author may be writing some things that he understands at an elementary level the Holy Spirit may be stating some things that are uh, in a plenary or full sense more profound that the original writer did not fully comprehend or appreciate. That's certainly possible. So you have the divine author and the human author, and the divine author is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's role within the plan of God to reveal God to man. To reveal God to man. So that we can say that revelation means to unveil, 
to disclose or to uncover that which was previously unknown. It means to unveil, disclose, or uncover what was previously unknown. So he gives us information we cannot know from any other source. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Secondly, we can say that revelation is propositional. Uh, not prepositional, that's a typo. Propositional. Propositional, that means it states truth. It's not experiential. You don't meet God in the Scriptures. You learn about God in the Scriptures. A proposition is a statement that can be falsified or verified. And the Scripture is propositional. It's objective. Third thing we learn is that the Holy Spirit is the author of both Old and New Testament, according to 2 Samuel 23, 2-3. Mark 12:36, Acts 1:16, Acts 28:25, John 14:26, First Thessalonians 4:2, First Second Thessalonians 3:6, 12, and 14. Just a few of the verses that indicate that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit also is involved in helping us to understand the Word of God in the church age. He helps us to comprehend and understand the Word of God. He doesn't understand it for us. We still have to exercise our thinking. We still have to think with the mentality of our soul. We have to think about what we're learning and come to comprehend it. But He will make it possible for us to come to that comprehension. Just because you hear it once or twice and just because you can restate it the way I state it or the way some other pastor states it doesn't mean you comprehend it. I mean, I've I've passed many tests in my life going through uh, college and going through uh, seminary and graduate course and doctoral programs and that doesn't mean I really understood what I was regurgitating on that examination. Sometimes it was years later as I was studying something, all of a sudden it came together and I really understood it. You can't internalize something as epinosis until you uh, believe it, and you can't believe it unless you understand it. You can't believe it simply because I state it and it sounds good. If you don't understand it, you can't convert it from gnosis to epinosis under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God. He teaches us, according to John 16:12 to 15, He brings doctrine to our memory, and He converts gnosis to epinosis, and the soul, which is usable doctrine. Now, that's the Holy Spirit's role. The human author's role is that he he writes the Scriptures. Now, he writes it from his own frame of reference and from his own background. God reveals things to him in different ways. You look at the prophets. They have dreams, visions. In some places, God specifically dictated to them, but that's unusual. That's not normative. But the human authors came from various walks of life, education backgrounds, and cultural differences. Think about Abraham, grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, which was a city dominated by the pagan worship of of the moon god and uh, that whole pagan environment, and yet he learned about God and trusted God. He was, uh, from what we know from his family, he was an aristocrat, so he was one of the wealthiest men in the Bible. And that was his background. And then he left Ur the Chaldees and moved over to become a, a migrant for the rest of his life. And he never had a permanent home again in Canaan. Moses was trained to be Pharaoh. He grew up in an Egyptian culture and was trained in all of the arts and sciences and mythology of the Egyptians. 
Joshua was a former slave who rose to the rank of general. Amos was a herdsman and a fig picker. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a rabbi. Daniel was a prime minister. Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophets. Ezra was a priest. Luke was a physician. They come from different walks of life. They're trained in different cultures. Luke grew up in primarily a Greco-Roman culture outside of Israel. And yet, they write write over a 2,000-year period of time with no contradiction. They focus on the same themes. They are uh, complementary in everything that they say. And every doctrine is in harmony with, with other passages of Scripture. So that it is a phenomenal book. It is unique. And that is because of the uh, next part, and that is that it is supernaturally directed. We're told that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human authors of Scripture so that the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in and through them. It's not through dictation. It's not through mechanical means. They are sitting down, and in some cases they were conscious they were writing the Word of God, and it's even conceivable in other situations they were not conscious that they were writing the Word of God. But nevertheless, God the Holy Spirit was so superintending or overriding them that what they wrote was guaranteed to be free from error. And yet He did it in such a way that He did not negate their own individual personality styles. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waving, this is the next section of the definition, without waving their human intelligence... They had different intelligence levels. Paul was brilliant. John was not academically trained yet, and he writes in a very simple form with a simple vocabulary, yet he does it in a way that shows that he has reflected profoundly upon what Jesus taught him during those three years on the earth. You have, you have men like Moses who was just tra- trained in all of the academics of the day and just, just brilliant, and others who were not so brilliant but they were all used by God. Their vocabulary shifts. There's a tremendous difference in John's vocabulary from Paul's vocabulary. There's a difference in Moses' vocabulary from the vocabulary of Daniel and the vocabulary of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And you have to read them in the original languages and read them over and over again in order to be able to discern some of those distinctions. And that's not easy. That's why it's so important for pastors to learn the original languages and to spend time reading the text in the original languages. Their individuality, they had different strengths, different weaknesses, they had different sin natures. Some of them trended towards one sin pattern and some trended towards another sin nature nature trend pattern. They were all sinners. They all failed at times. They have different literary styles. John has a, a unique literary style, unique to him. And different personalities... I think of John as more quiet, more contemplative. I think of Paul as being being more outgoing and and more of a, a, a more prone to do battle and to to be more combative in his confrontation with uh, false doctrine and and uh, legalism. They had different emotions, different personal feelings about different things. But God, the Holy Spirit, allows their individual personalities to be expressed in their writings. And yet, what each author wrote is still free from error. This is the next section. His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original language of Scripture. 
Look at that first phrase, His complete and coherent message. What do I mean by that? First of all, His message is complete. There's no additions to it. We're not getting new revelations today. When you hear people say that, that they have the gift of prophet or some prophet spoke over them, immediately you know, warning buzzers ought to be blasting off in your mind and you ought to be planning to do an about-face and full speed ahead. Let's get out of here because this guy's a nut. You know, there is no ongoing revelation today. It is complete and that means that it is all we need to know. It has provided the framework for every detail of life so that we can develop from a divine viewpoint, uh, a biblical or Christian view of culture. That means there are, there are within a broad category, you can develop a divine viewpoint of art, literature, music, architecture, everything, and, and not just sit back and, and just think that the Bible just addresses the spiritual life or salvation, but it addresses everything. Law, politics, government are all addressed in the Scriptures. That's why it is such a fascinating book and there's so much to get into. His message is complete. It is sufficient. It's more than enough. Second, we see it's complete and coherent. Now, that's something a lot of uh, academics don't uh, seem to apply very much. It's coherent. That means it's understandable. God communicated to be understood. How many times have you heard people say, well... It's just not very clear what the Scripture says. But God communicated to say something. And, and I've been doing a study recently for some, some uh, work I have to write on, uh, on, for a systematic theology on Satanology and demonology. And one of the things that is slowly seeping into uh, evangelicalism in, among conservatives is the idea that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do not address the fall of Satan. They relate to a historical figure or mythological figure or some other explanation. And as I have read some of the recent commentaries, recent scholarly commentaries written on these books by so-called conservative evangelicals, it's like they go through the options, but they never reach a conclusion. Well, we're not really sure what God said. Well, listen, God intended to communicate A, B, or C, not all three. God intended to communicate something so it could be understood. Now, that means that you better reach a conclusion. You may be wrong, but don't sit there like uh, some lukewarm piece of milk toast and just say, well, it could mean anything. God intended to communicate something. The assumption underlying the view that we can't understand is blasphemous because what you're really saying is God just isn't clear. Well, you may be fuzzy and stupid, but God's clear. So evaluate the data and reach a conclusion, but don't sit there confused. His message is coherent. It was designed to not obfuscate, not to be opaque or obtuse, but to illuminate, enlighten, and to educate in everything. He wrote to communicate specific information and not to be vague. It's a message to mankind. A coherent complete and coherent message to mankind. It was not written to angels, to animals, to extraterrestrials. It was written to mankind. And it was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages. It's just the original autographs. It's just the original document that's inerrant. What you have in your New American Standard, New International Version, English translation, is not inerrant. 
Now, I hope that doesn't shock some of you. Because what you have is a translation. And that translation is not guaranteed to be inerrant or infallible. It is the original that original writing that is inerrant. Now, errors entered in in copying, in transmission. Most of those errors are grammatical errors. Most of those errors are words dropped out of a sentence here or an extra words added in somewhere else. Uh, as, a, as a copyist would be going down the page, sometimes his eye would skip from where one word was used on one line and the same word used on the next line, and he drops out a phrase. But we have thousands of manuscripts today uh, of, the, of the Scriptures, and by comparing manuscript with manuscript, it's called the science of textual criticism, you can compare and reconstruct what the original said. It's a lot... You, you, can, derive, you can only derive inerrant, infallible conclusions from a document that is originally inerrant or infallible. If the originals were fallible, then everything's fallible. And you're really left, left, left on a sea of subjectivity. So his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages. That's why you have to study Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament in the original languages of the Bible. Now, this is referred to as... Uh, on oh, the last phrase. Don't want to skip the last phrase. The very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, what does that mean? That means when someone hears the Word of God, they know it's the Word of God. They may reject that. They may suppress that. They may deny it. They may ignore it. But nevertheless, their soul resonates with the reality that God has spoken. Because the words of Scripture bear His authority. It's just like when you were a kid, by analogy, and you were home and your father came home and he wanted you and he yelled out your name, Jim, come here! You knew that voice had authority and you had to move fast. There is an inherent authority to the Word of God and the creature knows that. Now, we've studied in Romans 1, 18 and 19 that God... That, that man, that negative man, after God consciousness, can reject, suppress, ignore, and deny it. Nevertheless, in his heart of hearts, in his, the depths of his soul, he knows that God has spoken. That gives us great comfort. When we're witnessing to people, it's not up to us to prove the Word of God. By, by what authority are you going to prove the Word of God? If you're talking with an unbeliever and they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, to what authority are you going to appeal that's greater than the Word of God to demonstrate the truth of the Word of God. You can't. You can't. If, if you try to appeal to some other authority, to reason, to history, to science, to evidence, as a greater authority than the Word of God, then you have negated your own position. We teach and explain and proclaim the Word of God, explain the Gospel to people, and the Word of God carries its own authority. It is self-validating. And all we have to do is communicate it clearly, answer questions, explain. That's all part of it. But we never negate our own position by saying, okay, well, let's see. Let, let me prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God. To what authority would you appeal to that is greater than the Bible? There is none. The Bible contains its own authority. And so the authority is God's. It's not ours. And we can relax when we're witnessing, when we're explaining to people that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, and we can explain the dynamics of salvation, we can answer their questions, but the issue is their volition, 
The, and if they reject it, it's not because we didn't prove it. Because it's not up to us to prove it. Okay. Then we come to point two. This is really point two. And this is the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. And this is taken out of our doctrinal statement. So those of you who are relatively new to Preston City Bible Church can understand what we mean in our doctrinal statement. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. We believe the Scripture in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, both Old and New Testaments, to be the plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. Plenary means that the entirety of Scripture is equally and fully revealed and inspired by God. Plenary means full. That means the whole Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is equally and fully inspired by God. <coughs> Excuse me. Verbal refers to the principle of inerrancy, that inspiration extends to each every word. Inspiration itself means God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and means that the Bible is God's complete and connected thought to mankind. And then we list several passages we've already looked at. Further, we believe that the Bible is to be interpreted in a normal and literal way consistent with the historical grammatical principle of hermeneutics under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now, by verbal we mean that the very words themselves are inspired. Every single word. Plenary means that every word is equally inspired. And infallible means that each word is equally authoritative and without error. And then fourth technical term, inerrancy, that no error existed in the original autographs of Scripture. That's our definition of inspiration. Now, how did inspiration take place? What are the mechanics of Scripture, of inspiration? That's covered in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, 16 and 17, as well as 2 Peter 3, 16. Uh, 2 Peter, excuse me, uh, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired. We've looked at theopneustos. It means breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now this starts off by saying that all Scripture is in the Greek pasagraphe, which means all Scripture. It doesn't mean uh, some of Scripture. It refers to the entire 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. 1 Peter 5.18, for example, Paul links the Old Testament and New Testament verses together and calls both verses Scripture. In that verse, Paul writes, 1 Timothy 5.18, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. And that's a quote from Luke 10.7. So when Paul wrote 1 Timothy 5.18, he connects Mosaic writing with Luke's writing and declares them both to be Scripture. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter writes, As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So sometimes this should give you comfort if you think that what I say is hard to understand and you have difficulty with it. Just put it on the back burner. Think about it a while. But even Peter read Paul and said, I'm not sure I really understand that. 
Paul says some things that are hard to understand. This is from one apostle to another. What's the untaught and unstable distort? We certainly have many examples of that, so I won't go into that, as they do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. So we look at... Let me back up a minute to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate. Now, adequate sounds kind of weak, doesn't it? Well, he's just adequate. He's just barely there. Well, that's not what the uh, Greek says. Adequate and equipped for every good work. The word adequate is the Greek word artios. Artios. Artios means to be qualified, to be proficient, to be skillful, and equipped. That's more than adequate. It's to be skillful. That the man of God may be competent, proficient, skillful, and then equipped for every good work. Equipped is from the Greek word exartizo, which means to be equipped, educated, edified, and prepared for every good work. Exartizo is related to another Greek word, katartizo. Notice artizo is the second part. You have a preposition in the front. And over in Ephesians chapter 4, 10, and 11, we're told that God gave certain gifts to the body of Christ for the equipping of the saints. And among those gifts are pastor-teacher, to equip the saints. Katartizo there, not exartizo here, but similar meaning that the way the pastor equips the saints is through what? Going to the hospital and visiting them and holding their hand. Having uh, rock concerts on Friday night to... to Invite so that all the uh, uh, teenagers around will feel comfortable when they come to church and not challenged by uh, some Bible thumper uh, to uh, have ten-minute sermonettes on Sunday morning to make everybody feel good and go home warmed and happy and excited that they sang such wonderful... No. He equips them. How does He equip them? Through teaching the Word. That's the job description of the pastor-teacher. But see, most people don't want to be equipped anymore. They don't want to learn the Word, so they want to go someplace and feel good on Sunday morning and not learn the Word. So that's why so many churches have so many people there is because uh, they just want to feel good and they go and they, they're excited about all the things they're doing for Jesus and, and all the great songs they sing and how wonderful all their programs are, but nobody knows anything about the Bible because they are not equipped. And that's the role of the pastor. So the Word of God is designed. It makes us qualified, proficient, competent, and skillful and equipped, educated, edified, and prepared for every good work. Now let's look at another way to demonstrate the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture just from a basic syllogism. Basic syllogism. Point number one, God is absolute veracity. Veracity means truth. God is absolute truth. Romans 3, 4, Paul states, May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightst be justified in thy words and might prevail when thou art judged. In other words, God is true. He's absolute veracity. So, point number one in the syllogism, God is absolute truth. Point number two, God is the source of Scripture. Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3.16. Excuse me, second, that should be 2 Timothy 3.16. And we've just looked at that. God is the source of Scripture. He breathes out the Scriptures. Therefore, conclusion, the Scriptures are absolute truth. If God is absolute truth and the source of Scriptures, and the Scriptures are absolute truth, John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. 
Now that's just a basic syllogism based on Scripture. And the rule of a syllogism is that if the premises of a syllogism are correct, and they are, God is truth, He breathed out Scripture. Those are the premises. If the premises of a syllogism are correct, then the conclusion must be correct. Because the, the conclusion is simply composed of two elements, uh, one from the first premise and one from the second premise. So that covers the origin of the word. And next time we'll come back and look at human involvement because some people think that since men were involved, that has to introduce error. And just in case you miss it, if that's true, if that statement is true, that if man is involved, error must follow, then Jesus could not have been infallible or without sin because he was human and divine. So the very fact that you would claim that the Bible has error because men were involved means by implication that Jesus could not have been impeccable and therefore not the Savior of the world. So a rejection of inerrancy and infallibility is, I think, almost every heresy ultimately assaults the person and work of Jesus Christ as inerrancy does. Because Jesus Christ had to be perfect without sin to go to the cross, qualify to die as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could have salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and Jesus Christ paid the penalty. Every single sin was paid for. So the issue is not sin, it's not our failures. The issue is the cross. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to realize it's absolute truth, and you tell us all about yourself and all about us. It is through your word that we understand who we are as human beings, what your plan is for us, what our failures are, and what your grace solution is. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation and unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make it both sure and certain. All that you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you and that he paid the penalty for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. Salvation is not based on works. It's not based on moral reformation. It's not based on joining a church. It's not based on any human factor. It is simply based on your accepting as true what the Bible teaches that Christ died for your sins. Father, we pray that for the rest of us that we would be challenged by what we've learned, that we would realize that if this Bible is your word, that means that it should be the highest priority in our lives and we should do everything we can to make your thoughts our thoughts, that we might live a life that pleases you and that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.